Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Persevering in Hope, Dr. John Newfeld brings us a message entitled Heaven and Hell. So turning your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Most probably the most offensive doctrine of the Christian faith is the doctrine of hell. It's even so among Christians, many of whom can't imagine that a God of love would send someone into everlasting torment. To that end, some have argued that hell is only of a limited duration, that is, after a time of suffering will come either annihilation or redemption. And still others argue that God would never send anyone there. Indeed, if anyone goes at all, it's their own choice to go against God's counsel, but God would not send someone there. And then, of course, there are those who argue that all talk of hell is merely figurative. And so, you know, we can't think of it as a physical state. For them, it's psychological or some spiritual state of inner turmoil. Well, in our study of 2 Thessalonians, we've already heard the very harsh language which Paul has employed against those who are presently persecuting the church. He has spoken of that day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, accompanied by his mighty angels, and then in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Well, the Greek term for vengeance can also be translated as retribution. I said it when we studied it then, and and I wish to repeat it now, that when Jesus comes, he comes to fulfill the law that was stated, well, in Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And so in the context of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is speaking directly to those who are persecuting the church. Whatever they've done will be returned on their own heads in the day when Jesus returns. Now then, there are those who argue that I must have misunderstood this passage. I mean, surely the word retribution can't mean that. I mean, after all, in in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then he goes on to say, don't resist the evil person. Indeed, go ahead and bless the evil person. Well, if that's what Jesus plainly taught, and he did, how can he now turn around and inflict vengeance in the order of the very law that he seems to be overthrowing in his famous Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's an excellent question, and many serious Christians have wrestled with that. So let's see if we can address what at the outset seems like a contradiction. Which Christian ethic shall we adopt? One of love and forgiveness of enemies or one of vengeance and retribution of enemies? So let's begin by acknowledging that when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with Matthew 5, 17 to 18. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So if Jesus begins by saying, I have not come to do away with the Mosaic law, and then in almost the very next breath, he says, ah, but by the way, you know, about that Levitical law regarding retribution, I I am doing away with that law. Well, if that's what he was doing, it makes Jesus sound like he, he can't get three sentences out of his mouth without contradicting himself. 
In fact, what Jesus said about the eye for an eye law is very profound. The law was given through Moses, and it was clear. When damages were done, the guilty party needed to pay in exact accordance with those damages. So if you stole your neighbor's sheep or ox, you'd you'd have to restore that sheep or ox, then add a fifth of the valuation, and then justice was seen to have been served. An eye for an eye, a sheep for a sheep. See, that means if your neighbor stole your sheep, you can't burn his house down. No, no, punishment has to be limited to the actual crime that was committed. And it turns out it's a great law. The late Chuck Colson, who headed up an organization called Prison Fellowship, pointed out that that law has been ignored in our day. And so, for instance, if someone steals a car, they're sent to prison. But in the Levitical law, that wouldn't happen. For that violates the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Rather, they'd be forced to buy a car of equal worth, restore it, add a fifth to the valuation, and that would end the matter. But let's not get distracted. Let's get back to Jesus. In Jesus' day, there were plenty of folks who took the matter of crimes and the matter of personal injury into their own hands. You know, someone knocks out your tooth. Well, don't wait for the law to provide justice. Do it on your own. Go ahead, knock out his tooth. And that's what Jesus was getting at. He's saying, no one has the right to take justice into their own hands. Instead of paying back, forgive that person. Indeed, you must even bless that person. That is, Jesus was not arguing that we do away with the law courts, but rather that we do away with personal vengeance. It's essential. And Paul certainly understood Jesus that way. You know, in Romans 12, 19 to 20, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. See what Paul's done. He's taken Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, he's explained it, and he's applied it to believers. Don't you take the law into your own hands. But if you should say, well, wait a minute, the law is so corrupt, I'm not going to get justice. Paul will say, leave it to the Lord. In due time, he will visit wrath on the heads of all evildoers. As for you, bless your enemies. Know for certain that in due time, justice will be served by the greatest law court in history, God's throne of justice. See, that's liberating. It's not that Christians forgive and therefore have abandoned all sense of justice. No, no. It's rather that Christians forgive, leaving the final judgment to God. We never take the law into our own hands. We take forgiveness into our own hands. And and that's Paul's argument in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. Jesus comes back and he is the final justice of God. For those who have persecuted the church, Jesus repays every bit of persecution back on their own heads because he comes back as the judge. It's not a contradiction. The real Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Well, then having said that, Paul's ready to move to the next thought, and that's found in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So let's be clear about what's being taught. First, the punishment due these persecutors of God's people, they're going to suffer eternal destruction. Now then, There are those who argue that this must refer to annihilation. 
They are eternally destroyed, so they are no more, say these teachers. They say, you know, it doesn't say they're thrown into the lake of fire. Rather, they're eternally destroyed. So what do we make of that? So let's notice that the phrase eternal destruction stands in direct contrast to another biblical phrase, and that's the phrase eternal life. So then, there are two options, eternal destruction or eternal life. And in either case, whether it's destruction or whether it's life, it carries with it a sense of duration. It's eternal. And so wherever you come out, we can't argue for an afterlife of limited duration. No, wherever we end up after this life, the results will be eternal or everlasting or never-ending. That's what's awaiting everyone. The only thing left then is to understand what Paul means by the term destruction. Notice that in order to describe it, he says that this destruction is, in his words, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, there are some places in the Bible, namely 1 Corinthians 5, 5, 1 Timothy 6, 9. There, the term destruction speaks of the end of physical life, or to put it more plainly, the destruction of the human body. That's physical death. You know, does Paul mean that? No, no, that's not what he means here. See, consider Jesus' own teaching on this matter. Matthew 24, 46, speaking of the wicked, Jesus says, these go away into eternal punishment. And then he contrasts their fate with the fate of the righteous, whom Jesus says, go to eternal life. That is, for Jesus, the word is the same. Eternal means eternal. It's everlasting. It's never ceasing. It's without end. It's always carrying on. So for Jesus, the world to come is eternal, but it is eternal life or eternal punishment. And so if Paul is in line with Jesus, and he is, then for Paul, eternal destruction is exactly equivalent to suffering punishment that is unceasing. That's what he means by eternal destruction. So when Paul says, away from the presence of the Lord, he means that God has rejected that person eternally. It's as if he's saying, away with you. No grace, no mercy will ever come to you again. We're so grateful for those who tune into our radio program every day, read our online resources, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. This week, we received an encouraging note from a couple. Robbie and Karen wrote to say, we found ourselves in the same situation as many folk, unable to fellowship with other believers in Christ since the COVID virus has started. We were so grateful to tune into Back to the Bible Canada, to be fed God's word and have the passages so clearly explained. Both of us have learned so much since the COVID lockdown began. Well, we're so thankful to hear words of encouragement like this from people all over Canada. And we're grateful for those who give financially so that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada can continue to impact lives. Don't forget, this month, every dollar you give will be doubled up to $50,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. From what Paul says, it's very clear that eternity for those who stand against God's purposes is an eternity, an everlasting existence in which God eternally rejects them. Away from my presence, away from my blessing, 
away from my grace, away from my favor. This estate, says Paul, is eternal. It never ends. It's a horrifying thought. But then Paul makes a contrast. We notice that these believers were suffering persecution from both a Jewish synagogue and from the Greek pagan community. It must have seemed to them that the entire world had turned against them. But Paul's been speaking about the final day when Jesus is revealed from heaven along with his powerful angels. And in that day, the tables will turn. You know, many of us living in the Western world, this this idea of being hated on account of Jesus, well, it does seem far away from our experience. Yeah, we are sometimes criticized, but we've never faced the kind of things that other believers have faced in different lands. And and the reason, for instance, that churches are tax-exempt in our culture is because historically, the government has believed that a flourishing church is good for a society. Well, that's changed now. There's a growing hostile movement that now believes that the church is negative and that it represents a way of thinking and believing and acting that must be stopped. And suddenly, we're beginning to appreciate what it feels like when a hostile community wants to stop us. You know, that's why, just like, you know, among the Thessalonian believers, it's important to remember that the day will soon come when the tables will be turned. Christ is not returning to set up a democracy. Rather, he is setting up a kingdom that will never pass away, and in that kingdom, he rules. Now, having reminded the believers in Thessalonica of the fate of the wicked, Paul now speaks of what believers will face when Christ returns. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We need to remember that verse 10 is actually the conclusion of a long sentence. When he comes on that day, still refers back to when Christ comes on the day to inflict vengeance on his enemies. But while that's a horrifying day for those who have hated Christ, it's a marvelous day for those who love him. The appearance of Jesus causes the church to marvel, says Paul. Notice that Paul does not say that believers gloat over the misfortunes of their enemies. Indeed, how the people of God react to the judgment of the wicked, that matter is not recorded here nor is it the focus of the second coming of Jesus. Believers in Jesus are not motivated by telling their enemies, you know, just you wait, your time's coming. Rather, for believers, Jesus comes to be glorified. And the Greek word means to receive great honor. And some Bible teachers believe that Paul is making a deliberate reference here to Psalm 89, verses 6 to 8. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Now that's to say, when Jesus appeared, as lovely as he already seems to us now, then we will come to realize that his glory is so much greater than we had imagined. And that's why Paul uses the word to marvel. It's as if the first reaction when the saints are taken up in the twinkling of an eye and there behold Jesus for the very first time, that jaws hang open, eyes are wide, tears stream down cheeks, and all God's people are left in breathless wonder. Lord, we didn't even know the half of your beauty. All of this, says Paul, lies in our future. 
Not only have you escaped the judgment to come, you've been given this as a future. All this is because, says Paul, you believed our testimony. Having heard the gospel from Paul's lips and believing this is your future. I think that for eternal ages, as we move from one degree of joy and glory and purpose in ever-increasing waves to another, that there will be a time to consider how precious it was that first moment when we first believed. Now, having stated the contrast between those who believe from those who do not, Paul now adds something, and it's a personal note. And we have to bear in mind that when we read Paul's letters, we're not just reading doctrinal formulations, but rather they're personal, intimate expressions of love between fellow believers. So listen now, as Paul speaks to this church, he's planted it, he's established it, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that might seem like a long, complicated sentence, so let's break it down. First, Paul tells the believers there that he knows what's at stake. And because of that, he not only prays for them, but he's always praying for them. He never stops. He loves them, and he wants the future that he knows is coming for them. And when Paul prays, he's praying for two very specific outcomes. The first is that God would make them worthy of their calling. So so what does he mean? Well, he means that their lifestyle should be in accord with what God has called them to be. You know, for instance, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says that God the Father has chosen us before the foundation of the world so that we might be holy and blameless before him. See, holiness speaks of purity and renouncing sinful ways. Now, Paul says, my prayer is that that you don't end up being hypocrites, believing one thing and living a different way. I pray that your lifestyle will mirror what has occurred when God called you. And the second thing that Paul prays for is that, that God will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So start with the word resolve. Every Christian, as well as the Thessalonian believers, make resolutions. When Paul speaks about resolving for good, he means the things that believers want to do. I want to minister to the poor. I want to be involved in missions, bringing Christ to the world. I want to be an advocate for persecuted Christians. Or I want to bring transformation to my workplace so people are dealt with fairly and and the name of Christ is heard where I work. I want to train my kids so they're going to be lifelong followers of Jesus. These are all godly resolutions. Every believer speaks this way. You know, they're often in, in keeping with our unique gifts as well as, you know, that sense we get of the calling God has placed upon us. You know, so we resolve that as God grants us the opportunity, we will do this. And then there's another resolve, and Paul calls this second one a resolve for every work of faith by his power. See, a work of faith can also be translated as every action that we do arising from faith, and that really refers to our obedience. You know, God calls us to forgive our enemies, and we do so believing his word is true. That's one example. Now, every genuine believer has these resolutions. I want to do good, I want to be obedient, and I want to avoid sin. That's our resolve. But as we know, resolving is one thing and carrying it out, well, that's something else. And so Paul says, I've never stopped praying for you. 
And I'm sure at this point, the Thessalonian believers are saying, thank you, Paul. So please don't stop praying. We need that. But Paul's still not done. Paul is constantly praying that God would make them worthy of their calling, make them fulfill every resolve. And then he says, he tells the believers that this will be the result of my prayer. He says, I know that once I've prayed that, two things are going to happen. First, the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. That's because of your conduct. Christ is going to be exalted. You know, perhaps Paul's thinking about, you know, that hostile community in which they lived and seeing the calm resolve of believers and their consistent lifestyle, you know, observing their evident love for one another and their obedience to their Lord and their love for those in the community. Well, you know, people will say, you know, this is the Jesus who transformed these people. Well, maybe he's a lot greater than we thought. You know, perhaps Paul has in mind the things that that happen in the heavenlies. You know, Jesus is worshiped by the angelic host because of the outcome of his work in the lives of those who believe. But however it is, the reputation of Jesus is enhanced because of the lives of his people. That's the first thing that Paul says, I know is going to happen. And the second is this, that the believers are glorified in Jesus. And Jesus holds the believers as precious. They're in his trophy case of grace. Jesus, if you will, is saying, I'm so proud of what I have created in you. Think of it. This is the destiny of those who hope for Christ. Heaven and hell, whatever you do, get to heaven. Thanks, John. Just a question, and it's really a curiosity. I'm interested in knowing when the Bible says we are away from God's presence, does that mean that God can be both omnipresent and away from us at the same time? Yeah, it sure does, because, you know, hell is set away from his presence. And since we know that God is omnipresent, yes, Ben, you're right. Uh, David says, where can I flee from your presence? Even if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. So God is present in hell to punish all his enemies. But I think it means away from his presence means away from his blessing presence. So, um, That's the one thing that we should avoid more than anything else. We want to live under the blessing of God at all times. So that's, you know, for us always the goal of every believer. And that's one of the reasons we share the gospel, so that people might be in God's presence, so that they might share in his love. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Persevering in Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell, back to the Bible Canada. We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to folks right across Canada is important to you. It's with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship Program, inspired by Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 and 19. The purpose of the fellowship is to ensure that trustworthy Bible teaching continues to be made available for generations to come. To create a stable source of funds to provide reliable, excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching, our prayer is to welcome an additional 331 new monthly givers by the end of this year in what we're calling our March to a Thousand. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, would you give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship. Back to the Bible Canada, 
Bible teaching you can trust. 